Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. All right, it's Kincaid and Breckenridge on Newstalk 770. Thanks for listening to the show. Thanks for listening to this uh, Highlights podcast. Uh, the idea of uh, bringing an IndyCar race to Calgary came up today, whether that'd be worth the cost, whether there'd be enough fan interest. We spoke with someone in Toronto who had some insight on those questions. We also talked about uh, the potential discovery of the tomb of Nefertiti, an ancient queen of Egypt. You can listen to our program every Monday to Friday from 9.30 to 12.30 on Newstalk 770 and Newstalk770.com. It's King Cain and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. Welcome back. Uh, auto racing all of a sudden, a uh, big story in, in Calgary this morning. You know, by the way, I had my chance to go to uh, my, my very first NASCAR race in the summer. Oh, yeah? So uh, yeah, yeah, to speak to the auto race experience. I don't think we're ever going to get anything like that here. But what about an IndyCar race? Now, here's my take on Indy on IndyCar. And and listen, I, I know about auto racing. I've been to the Indy in Vancouver, but that's kind of like the extent of it. But it seems to me that Indy is like the other car racing. Like NASCAR is hugely popular. Formula One is very popular. And then there's Indy car racing. Well, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. That's just my take on it. Like NASCAR is beer. Formula One is champagne. Indy car is milk. Milk. Well, I mean, the Indy 500 is still a huge event. Sure. Uh, yeah. and, and has stood the test of time. And, and I guess... Outside of that, to varying degrees, you'll find some races that do really well, others maybe not. Uh, now, Edmonton, of course, people here might be familiar with the fact that Edmonton for a while had an IndyCar race uh, that ended, I think, in 2012, if I'm not mistaken, uh, because it wasn't going so well. Uh, interest was waning. There was some cost involved that the city of Edmonton was no longer prepared to, to meet, uh, no longer prepared to put up that money, and so the race left. So I don't know. I mean, is that kind of a warning for Calgary that, uh, you know, go down this path at your peril? Now, apparently, James Hinchcliffe, who's a Canadian in the IndyCar circuit, was in town last week. The co-owner of his team is based in Calgary, and what they were doing was, uh, you know, sort of seeing if there's some interest, uh, lobbying Calgary to to step up and seek to be a host of an IndyCar event. And there's some on the city council who seem pretty excited about the idea. Well, let's bring our guest into this. This is uh, Stephanie Walcraft. She joins us now, contributing columnist for the Toronto Star and writes a lot about uh, auto racing in general. Stephanie, welcome to the program. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So first of all, is my as a passive uh, uh, you know, s- s- racing watcher, is my take that Indy is the other racing? Is that fair? Um, in the current sphere of auto racing worldwide, I'd say it's it's a fairly accurate assessment. Yeah, I mean, NASCAR is still huge in the United States. It's, even there, there's been a little bit of, uh, of a, a reduction in, in viewer numbers. Formula One is, uh, has uh, obviously one of the largest sports in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, IndyCar has sort of been struggling to, to find its footing for the last um, few years, more than a few years, depending on who you ask. A few um, sort of internal political squabbles have made it hard for it to to focus on 
growing as a sport, but uh, things seem to be, um, you know, in a constant state of flux, hoping to turn around in the near future, um, and uh, of course, always looking forward to see what can be done to uh, bring new events onto the calendar and, uh, and spark some interest. All right. Now, the, the calendar still includes Toronto, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And how, how successful is the Toronto Indy event? Well, again, it depends on who you ask. In the uh, grander scheme of the current IndyCar schedule, I'd say it's it's a fairly strong event. It's one that's been on the calendar, um, apart from one year, consistently since 1986. It's one of the the um, strongholds of the calendar, one of the ones that people sort of rely on having there, there and uh, and look forward to each year. But certainly it's not currently at the uh, the level that it was in the 1990s when they would pack 100,000 people nearly in, in, in the weekend. You get they they don't release um, attendance numbers, but it's probably more like twenty thousand to thirty thousand now. Um, and there's been some discussion in Toronto of if is it at the right venue? Are we is there is there a possibility that we could move it out to uh, Mosport to to entice more people to head out there? So I mean I wouldn't say that it's a, a completely um, stable event in its in its current format, but certainly it's one that uh, is is fairly um, stalwart on the calendar. Do you have any idea how much it costs to put on uh, an event like the Toronto Indy? It's a good question. Um, I know that it takes a lot of uh, government-level support, um, but the idea being that it pays back in what it brings in in, uh, in tourism, hotels, restaurants, that sort of thing. And so the government is meant to be looking at it sort of as an investment in, in um, bringing an event into the city to have money spent in the tourism industry, whether that pays off and to the, deg- the degree to what, which that pays off is a subject of debate. And I think that that's why you're seeing things like the Edmonton Indy having fallen off the calendar because they were, they found through their own studies that the, uh, the return on the investment was, was not as strong as they had hoped it would be. But I mean, there are new events there that are uh, joining the calendar. For example, uh, there's a, Bo- a Grand, Prix, Grand Prix planned for Boston next year at the end of the summer, and uh, and they're looking at it as a huge potential to bring in some tourism dollars. And so, uh, again, there's some government investment happening there. Are we talking millions, tens of millions? I'm not exactly sure. That's a number that doesn't often get discussed publicly. Yeah, when we talk about tourism then, Stephanie, are, are we talking about, like, say, in, in Toronto, is, is it about people from around Ontario, from outside of Toronto, converging on the city for this event? Or are we talking about fans that follow IndyCar who are going to come to Toronto because they like to travel to where the races are? It's a little bit of both. And Toronto is kind of hits a sweet spot that way in the sense that because it's such a great destination as a city, and I know you guys are from Calgary, so you can, you can argue with that about <laughs> with me all you want, but um, because it is a great destination as a city, it sort of turns into a little bit of a street party. And people will come just to be in Toronto for the weekend to take part in sort of the, the festival atmosphere as much as they come to watch the cars. And then you'll get some people who follow the circuit and want to be at the event to, to um, just add it to their calendar of events that they go to in the course of the year. And I think that Calgary would, would fill a similar, similar role. I think um, people would see it as an opportunity to visit a city that perhaps they wouldn't otherwise get to, or um, that would be the IndyCar fans would see it as a, as a new venue to visit, whereas you might get some people seeing the opportunity to visit Calgary um, and also take in the party and, and the, the street 
um, race atmosphere that uh, is unique to street races that uh, that Calgary would enjoy with the venue that's being discussed. Yeah, that's kind of the uh, well, yeah, the venue that's being discussed. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, is the Stampede Grounds. So yes, that's what I've understood as well. Right, which kind of, I mean, it's it's a good thing. It's a sensible place to hold it, but it, it eliminates the idea of having any overlap whatsoever with the Calgary Exhibition and Stampede because it takes some time to build the track and you. Obviously, you would have to have it, uh, uh, the, you know, down to bare asphalt basically before you could get started. But um, well, we have a similar situation in Toronto. Sorry to interrupt you. No, no. Whereas um, we hold our race at the uh, the CNE grounds, and so there's always a bit of a of a um, period between when the race needs to be broken down and the uh, the CNE needs to be started up. And the company that organizes the race here is uh, Green Savory Promotions, and they've got it down to a pretty good science as to how long it takes to break everything down and have everything ready. And I understand that that's the promoter that's um, that's discussing running the event in Calgary as well. So I think that aspect of it would be in pretty good hands. Cool. Um, the, the, the other the other question though is, is about that sort of uh, that festival that you talk about. I mean, how much of it is the race, and how much of it is all the ancillary events that go on around the race? Well. Um, I would say that you're looking at probably 50-50 or so, depending, again, on who you talk to. The race fans would like it to be more about the racing, of course, but it's the party that gets a, that gets a lot of people to show up. And so finding the right balance of all of that in an event is key, I think, to making it successful. It's one of the most important elements to making sure that, um, that the event has some staying power on the calendar. The events where they've um, tried to establish street races without sort of giving it that festival, um, that party feel, the ones that tend to not last very long on the calendar. And so um, that, that's definitely one of the aspects that uh, can be most important in making sure that the event is, uh, is successful long term. Like NASCAR, for example, seems pretty picky in, in, in venues, and, and they, they don't seem to like to change their schedule all that much, and they're pretty demanding about how their races are going to be won and what kind of track their races are going to be won, et cetera. Is, is Indy more flexible then in terms of being willing to change its schedule, in terms of what it demands from, from a host city and a host venue? I'm not sure that IndyCar is um, all that picky that these days just because they're still looking to expand their calendar to the degree that they can. The calendar is about 16 races right now, and I think that the series organizers would prefer it to be closer to 20. And so that's why there's a little bit of sort of um, shopping around, looking for new venues. Um, IndyCar is also much more apt to go with the street race format, whereas that's just not something that NASCAR does or is interested in. No. And that's got more to do with the, the way that the cars, um, the way that they drive, the kind of space that they need, the kind of crowds that they attract, that sort of thing. You were saying uh, coming into this segment that NASCAR is beer, Formula One is champagne. You could rather than, I mean, milk is, is apt, but you could also look at IndyCar as being sort of the Chardonnay of the, of the uh, motorsport world, where they're looking for people who are not sort of, going to show up and shave their favorite driver's number, number um, <laughs> in their body hair, but are, are going to be sort of middle class and, and looking for, for a good time. And, and sometimes IndyCar has found that it's easier to take the race to those people and put it in a downtown area than try to ask them to come out to um, a track away from the cities. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of the, the thinking behind the, the street race format. Okay. But maybe like a California Chardonnay, not like an old world... Uh... Old one, you know. Okay. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Stephanie, you just need to take a quick pause. Do you mind standing by? We'll keep this conversation Absolutely, going. Absolutely, no right. problem. We're going to take a, <clears throat> a pit stop. <laughs> you see what I did there? Oh, uh, I get yeah, it. Because we're talking about yes. auto racing, and I don't know if you know this, but when they have to get more gasoline or new tires, they pit. Well, that's what we'll do. We'll get some new tires. And we'll get gas up, and we'll be back <laughs> after this. It's Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770. 
All right, welcome back. This is TK in Breckenridge. I'm Roger. He is Rob. We're talking to Steph Walcraft, who really appreciated the pit, pit stop joke going Absolutely. into Absolutely. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, yep. I, I, I wonder if Calgary has uh, uh, kind of like a geographical advantage or disadvantage. Like, I don't think that there's a lot of opportunity for people on this part of the continent to get to an indie race that's close at hand. Uh, what's your take on that? Absolutely. There's a huge geographical uh, advantage there. I mean, not so long ago, I think it was uh, from the early 90s until 2004, IndyCar ran in Vancouver. And then there was the uh, Edmonton Indy from 2005 to 2012. And ever since then, there's been not only this gap in Western Canada, but in the Pacific Northwest area in general. And I think that as soon as Edmonton shut down, that people started saying, yeah, Calgary looks like a, a prime opportunity for an IndyCar race. It's the right kind of economy. There's the, the automotive culture. Um, the I mean, Rick Peterson, the, the co-owner of uh, Schmidt-Peterson Motorsports, is based in Calgary and has a huge personal stake in seeing an IndyCar race be successful there. And, and so the um, all the checks, uh, all the check boxes sort of get checked off with Calgary as a venue. Well, and, and there's a Canadian connection. Does it help having, uh, you know, prominent Canadian in IndyCar? And I guess there, there's a connection to Calgary, too, in that one of the, the, the team owners is based here. Uh, how much does that resonate with people? Very much. And um, James Hinchcliffe is, uh, is one of the, as you mentioned him earlier, biggest proponents of seeing this happen. For the longest time, there were two and at times even three Canadian races on the IndyCar calendar. And ever since Edmonton shut down, it's been only one. And, I mean... From James's perspective, of course, he wants there to be more than one because it solidifies his position as being a driver in the series. Anybody who thinks that that not having um, that having only one Canadian race on the calendar is is a, a good thing for James is kidding themselves because, of course, he wants to have greater exposure and and greater excitement for for the sport in Canada, as do we all. Um, but. It also opens up the potential, especially on the West Coast, of, uh, of getting people excited enough and invested enough in the sport to see some of the, the young drivers get opportunities and maybe get more than one Canadian racing in the series and, and um, sort of get the ball rolling on raising the profile even more. And there are a couple of really, really talented Canadian drivers who could get greater opportunities to get seats in IndyCar if this race comes off, which is a pretty big deal. Well, it's funny, too. We also got a Calgary kid who's out making his name uh, as an up-and-coming NASCAR driver. But we're getting some people texting saying, gee, I mean, the city's gone out of its way to, you know, eliminate the local racing scene. Uh, do, do you need that foundation to, for, for the sport to succeed? Well, it makes me think of a, um, a young man from Edmonton named Stefan Radzinski, who was uh, making his way up the open wheel racing ladder very nicely until the Edmonton race got canceled. And then his whole career kind of got the rug pulled out from under him. Um, and I could see that pattern repeating uh, and going the opposite way. If, if a Calgary race is established, all of a sudden it gives Stefan and other local talents um, a venue to be seen and be noticed, especially by local sponsors, which can sometimes make or break these, these young kids' opportunities to, to have a go at the sport. Because as we know, auto racing is not cheap, and um, the, they can only get so far and be family-funded for so long before they need some corporate support. And having these um, local venues to be seen in and to compete in definitely makes a huge Different for the difference for them in their careers. So I lived in Vancouver at the uh, tail end of their indie race there, and you know it's kind of it was exciting and fun to watch uh, Tracy win in these races. He won the last two there, and it was really cool to see you know Canadian on top of this international sport. It was fun, but people in Vancouver largely, well I shouldn't say largely, people who lived adjacent to the race grounds largely hated it. 
So how big of a problem is that with these races? I mean, is, is that just kind of par for the course that the residents in the condo towers nearby tend to hate the crowds and the sounds for the week that lead up to the race? Or is there a way to, to appease those people? And Vancouver was a bit of an outlier. Well, I can look at that from two perspectives. I think of, uh, I mean, Toronto is an exception because being on the exhibition grounds, there really aren't very many residents that are close to there to make a lot of noise. Um, in Long Beach, which is the longest standing street race in North America at higher levels, um, there are people who have been living in those condo towers and sort of embrace it and celebrate it and watch from their balconies, and, and it's just sort of something that's accepted as part of the culture there. On the other hand, that's been there for so long that trying to push back against it would probably be fairly futile at this point. Um, Vancouver, on the other hand, I would see it as sort of a, almost a cultural issue by the time that the uh, that the race came to a close with with people in Vancouver being very eco-minded and uh, and sort of seeing things a little bit differently than I think that people in Calgary would see them and on the other hand back in 2004 IndyCars were were uh, powered by naturally aspirated engines and in 2012 they switched to turbocharged power plants and I can tell you that they make a whole lot less noise than they used to and I think that people sort of who hadn't been for a while would sit down and see that there's actually a pretty big difference in the noise level that, that's created by such an event today and, and that it's actually not nearly as bad as it used to be. That's too bad. That was fun when they'd all go <laughs> blazing by the straightaway. Yeah, that effect is still there, but it's just you don't quite have to have the, the super-powered um, earplugs that you used to. Okay. So. Fair it's kind of nice. I take my daughter to the races now, and I don't stress out about your hearing damage as much as I used to. So. Cool. Yeah. Well, Stephanie, yeah, appreciate you joining us here today. Thanks for the input on this. Absolutely a pleasure. Thanks, guys. All right, take care. That's uh, Stephanie Walcraft. She is a uh, contributing columnist for the Toronto Star, obviously knows her thing or two about racing and uh, writes a lot about uh, about motorsport. And, by the way, first time I've ever made race car noises on the radio just now. Well, there you go. There's uh, a milestone there. Now, the other thing, and, and as it relates to what's happening here, you know, there's some frustration we're getting on some of the texts from racing fans who say, look, we're not getting a track out of this. What the motorsports community wants here is a track that to just have an indie race come in once a year and they take over uh, a section of road and do their thing and leave that doesn't leave any kind of infrastructure for the local motorsports community to build off you there, there's you can't keep using that because it was just a temporary thing for the indie guys and so it's they're not getting what they feel they need is that the the argument though i mean do the flames play here just for the benefit of the the beer league hockey player I mean, like, this is a race. This is a, would be a tourist event. If, if, if anything, this is something for the city to be uh, a feel-good slash economic generator, right? Well, the, I, you'd argue the flames <laughs> exist here because there's demand for it. Yeah, it's, the, it's supply and demand, and, and it's year-round, and it's not meant as a tourist uh, event. It's, it's uh, meant to supply the demand that exists in the city of Calgary. Um, I don't know that you could say the same for any. It seems that we're trying to create the demand. And we think that we can create enough demand uh, that that there'll be a, a profit to be had. But, I mean, Edmonton found that that wasn't the case. Yeah, I, I would say it's quite a gamble for little old Calgary, particularly in times where we might not want to be making such bets. Yeah. Let's talk right now about King Tut. Yeah. 
Everyone knows the name King Tut, even if people don't know the story. But obviously, what was it, uh, almost 100 years ago, they found King Tut's tomb and you know, his golden burial mask and what an amazing discovery that was and it sparked so much interest in, in the pyramids and the ancient Egypt. And uh, obviously, for, for the current country of Egypt, it's, it's been huge in terms of, of tourism. Yeah, um, and then uh, that there's been like Tut exhibits that have circled the world now. It seems to be like I guess the the the, the epicenter of Egyptology right now, the fascination with ancient Egypt, the pyramids, the whole pharaoh type thing, and there are still many more mysteries. And I wonder if Rob, if you if you're somebody who follows this, if you think that we are we know. Uh, a lot about ancient Egypt and the mysteries of ancient Egypt, or if we've just barely scratched the surface and there's so much more there. Well, our, our next guest can probably help answer some of that. But, I mean, uh, there, there, there's a lot we do know. Um, what's interesting about this story, why there's so much sudden interest in it, there, there's a, a British archaeologist who was as laying out this theory, essentially that King Tut's tomb was part of a, a larger tomb and part of a tomb that was intended on holding the body of a queen, not a king, that there's some unusual features about King Tut's tomb. Uh, believing that hidden behind it, we might find more. We might, in fact, find the remains of Queen Nefertiti. And there's a famous bust of, of Queen uh, Nefertiti that many people have probably seen before. Now that they've done some radar scanning of the tomb, there, there's 90% certainty they're now saying that there is something that lies beyond the north wall of the tomb. And the fact that we'd be discovering something new after all these years and something this significant is, is huge. All right, let's bring our guest into this now. Uh, this is Nicholas Wernick, the trustee for the Society uh, for the Study of Egyptian Antiquities. Nicholas, thanks for being with us this morning. Thank you for having me. So can, right. you, can you try to explain to us like the, the, the gravity of this discovery that Rob's just outlined? Oh, it would uh, change the face of Egyptology uh, easily, especially if there's an intact tomb. Um, um, you, you can just imagine how much uh, tourism would be revitalized in Egypt. Uh, with such a discovery, uh, not to mention its scientific implications as well. It would be huge. So as I understand, maybe you can speak to it, that, that the, the, the theories of, of uh, Mr. Reeves have been somewhat controversial in terms of not just his yeah. belief about what might be uh, behind King Tut's tomb, but uh, that, that Nefertiti herself may have ruled Egypt un, under a different name, etc. Et so how mainstream are those those views? Um, they're generally amongst Egyptologists, uh, no one is really, uh, that confident that it is the tomb of Nefertiti behind there. Uh, I would say that, yeah, maybe only about 25% of Egyptologists really agree with Nick Reeves that it might be the burial of Nefertiti. Is there an, a, another plausible explanation though, or, or maybe um, another, uh, uh, figure of significance? Yeah, well, like uh, the minister, the MSA minister, uh, Mahmoud Abdelmati, uh, he believes it's the burial of Kia, Tutankhamun's mother, um, which kind of begs the question, why was she afforded this opportunity to sort of be buried in the Valley of the Kings? Um, so Nick Reeves' argument sort of follows that it has to be Nefertiti because a lot of uh, another ephemeral king called uh, Smenkare that looks like to have merged with Nefertiti, that Nefertiti, after her husband died, took on this personal guise of this character named Smenkare. And a lot of that burial equipment intended for Smenkare ends up in Tutankhamun's tomb. Also, he's uh, suggesting that um, depictions on the north wall have more in common with Nefertiti's burial stuff than 
um, any other king. And what do you make of that? Um, it's it's a little bit of a leap of faith. Uh, the thing is, is that uh, at least with Professor Nickries, is that he doesn't say anything really lightly. He has put a lot of thought into this, <laughs> yeah. and he's excavated the Valley of the Kings for you know more than twenty years. So just like he has tremendous amount of experience, and anybody else who is suggesting this theory would would have probably been laughed off. But is the fact it, that yeah. Is it true then that there there are unusual features to King Tut's tomb that it, that it is smaller, uh, as as he points out, that that it has uh, design that's more indicative of, of of a queen than a king? Yes, uh, like for instance, in 18th Dynasty tombs, usually the tombs go a little bit straight and then veer off to the left. This one goes off to the right, and there's a, another queen who ruled as king. Um, named Hatshepsut, and her tomb actually veers off to the right. So that's that's part of that theory that it's a, you know it's a, for a queenly burial. Okay, and then I mean, are there are there other indications that that would lead Nicholas Reeves to be so uh, ardent in his assertion? Um, to tell you the truth, it, it's it, when you look at the information that he's proposed that it's like this. Similar art style. He's uh, made a lot of these northern walls uh, image of the king having this double chin, and he says, "Well, like based off of a few busts and a few art styles, that uh, Nefertiti is usually shown with a double chin, and so it follows that, you know, if it looks like that, it was intended for Nefertiti, then it must be Nefertiti." Why is Nefertiti such a significant figure in ancient Egypt? Um, well, one, uh, to tell you the truth, it's really because of the bust that's in uh, the Giptisches Museum in Berlin. Um, it's such a beautiful piece that like people have basically just sort of fallen in love with this, this bust and wanted to know more about the Amarna period in Egypt. Mm-hmm. And it, she seems to be such an enigmatic character in uh, Akhenaten's reign. And, and, I mean, the bust itself is it's from 3,300 years ago, right? Mm-hmm. Which is is just uh, truly remarkable. Now, what's the relationship between Nefertiti and and King Tut? Uh, I think there there are some who believe he, that she might have actually been his mother. There, there's at least indication that she was his, I guess, his stepmother. Then is that right? Yes, that's correct. Uh, well, at least based on the current uh, textual and archaeological evidence that we do have, it looks like uh, Tutankhamun was uh, born of a woman named Kia, a noblewoman who was sort of uh, Akhenaten's like second wife. Uh, she mysteriously disappears around year 11 of his reign. And then Nefertiti um, it seems to be this principal wife. And it's just like uh, Nick Reeves has even suggested that there might have been some sort of like Game of Thrones uh, sort of play where Nefertiti sort of got rid of Kia during that time. Okay, now correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't there the discovery of a mummy who may have been identified as Tutankhamun's mother? Yes, uh, it's called it's a mummy that was uh, founded at the turn of the century, and she's called the the younger lady. Um, the problem is, is that her burial it's the getting dna evidence from a body that's so old is it, it's very it almost uh, enters the realm of being conjecture um to get a positive identification there's just a few genetic markers that indicate that these two people are related in some way okay mm-hmm. um now is there a conspiracy theory that that comes along with this that that egypt has you know needs some good news right now, needs something to, to spur its tourism industry? 
Well, not so much a conspiracy theory. I think everybody knows that, uh, like at least the numbers in Luxor, they used to have about 12,000 visitors staying at any given time during the year. Um, right now, last time I spoke with somebody in Egypt, they said it's more like 300 right now. Oh, wow. um, the tourism industry has just completely bottomed out, and uh, a lot of Egyptians are out of work. So anything to do with a spectacular find such as this, even if it's just an empty room, um, they're hoping will generate some tourism back. Well, and I mean, I, you know, th- theoretically, it should be simple. You just smash through the wall and see what's there. But obviously, <laughs> that, that's not how things are done. So how, how difficult is it and how careful do they need to be in, in figuring out what's back there? Well, the, I think the current proposed theory that uh, I had heard is that there, uh, next to the burial chamber, there's an undecorated room called the Treasury. And there was talk of possibly drilling and putting a fiber optic camera, sort of like a Navy SEAL sort of seal camera uh, through a hole just to see if there is some sort of chamber back there. Um, but uh, the J- Japanese radar specialist, uh, Hirokatsu Watanabe, said that he'll need at least a month to take a look at these radar scans just to confirm exactly um, what the, the uh, his analysis is uh, telling him. And I mean, for a room that's been sealed off for more than 3,000 years, I mean, that, that presents some other challenges, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Like, a, you know, there's the scientific angle as well as the political angle. Like, who is exactly going to excavate this thing? Yeah. Um, you could just imagine that there's quite a few Egyptian officials that are jockeying for position to be involved in some way if there is an intact tomb behind there. Is there any motivation on the, the part of uh, some of those same Egyptian officials to maintain the, the, the mystery? Um not necessarily. It's just, uh, it, to tell you the truth, it would be such a boon for anybody's career to be involved. Like, even if you were cataloging, uh, you know, like pottery, if there was something there, um, it, there, there's just so much pressure on the Egyptian government, uh, or at least the officials in the MSA, to get in there and get, get going right away, because this will revitalize the tourism industry in Egypt. Now, as you say, I mean, it would obviously revive interest in, in mm-hmm. the subject, but would it does it hold the potential of changing our knowledge? What, what might we see or what could we theoretically find that would change our knowledge of, of who these people were and, and the role they played? Well, uh, the one thing is to consider is that uh, it will it be the only other intact tomb that we've ever found in the Valley of the Kings. Uh, that, that would just be absolutely huge. Um, also, there's, uh, uh, you know, basically, we could, if there is a mummy, we could analyze the mummy and just, like, determine sort of, like, anything from, like, diet, health. Um, there could be uh, religious implications for religious history, um, that if there's a certain level of certain objects that show that the, the sort of this uh, Amarna faith continued on into the 18th dynasty, um, you know, it's, it's really just conjecture at, like, what possibly contained in the tomb, but... Chances are that uh, any objects that we would find would have an impact on historical historical interpretations. Ah, um, that's fascinating. And I made this com- this comment earlier, but every time we we get into conversations about stuff like this, I always just want it to evolve into an Indiana Jones episode. <laughs> <laughs> I want somebody to move the, or lean on the wrong brick, and the whole thing animates. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I hear you. <laughs> All right. Well, Dr. Wernick, we'll, we'll leave it there. And I guess it's going to be a while before we know this, because as you say, they're taking their time with this. It's going to be a, a long operation if they decide they got to drill through. But I guess we'll, we'll know soon enough, won't we? 
Yeah, definitely. The other thing to consider is that, like, you know, when Howard Carter discovered the tomb of Tutankhamun, it took more than 10 years to excavate. So uh, if if there is something there, it's going to take a long time to catalog and sort of display stuff appropriately. All right. Uh, Dr. Warnick, thanks very much for your time. Much appreciated, sir. Thank you. All right, take care. Dr. Right. Nicholas uh, Warnick, trustee for the Society for the uh, Study of Egyptian Antiquities. Also president of the Calgary chapter of the Society and founder of uh, AncientEgyptOnline.org. So as he said, I mean, it would be hugely significant. And, and the fact that, I mean, you think about how long ago that was. Uh, and our, our challenge is to, to understand history much more recent than that. I mean, it's just fascinating that we know as much as we do about these figures and how much of this was preserved. And to make a new discovery now after all these years, and as he said, if, to find another intact tomb, that would really be amazing. we got to take a break here. We're back with more right after this. I can get a break and rich on News Talk 770. So, Roger, let me read this here. This is from a Washington Post account of all of this. So this is how you piece together Reeves' theory. And, you know, to his credit, he proposed this theory before anyone knew there was something behind this this wall. But he always maintained there was. So it goes like this. Nefertiti was the first wife and, and was the queen of uh, Akhenaten. Uh, that his theory is that Nefertiti took power after the king died. Uh, then she used the man's name, Smenkari, to garner greater legitimacy and continued to rule until her own death, at which point she was given a pharaoh's burial in a tomb of her own. When her stepson and successor, King Tut, died at age 19, no tomb was prepared for him. Instead, Tut was buried in an antechamber to Nefertiti's tomb, and Nefertiti, a controversial queen who some of the time may have wished to forget, was left to languish behind a blocked-off wall. So that this entire tomb, he maintains, which was much larger, was Nefertiti's. And that after King Tut died, he got a part of it. The rest was walled off and Nefertiti was left behind it and may still be there to this day. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's exactly how it went down. Um, the Egyptians at the time were constantly asking this king of theirs, uh, King uh, Shaman Shaken Smenkari. Smenkari, that's the guy I was thinking of. They were constantly saying, where's your wife? <laughs> and then he, he was like, oh, "I'll send her out." And then he would he would go, uh, he'd leave, and then Nefertiti would come out, and they'd be like, "Oh, where, where's Smenkari? And I'll go get him." So then she'd run out, and then he'd come uh, out. Uh, and, yeah. and they were, they were like, That's "We're tired, trying, right? well, we want to take your picture together, right?" Is what they'd say, and for the royal f- photographs, and she'd never allow oh, them yeah. to do it. So, so yeah. So anyway, it was discovered after the fact that there was like a little bit of a pokeroo game going on there. That's what they called it at the time. And so that's why they buried her in the way that they did. Interesting. Could be. Because <laughs> apparently a lot of Egypt scholars, Egyptologists, believe that there was uh, a king named Smenkari, but that that was a guy who was an actual king, not Nefertiti pretending to be someone. Right. Well, they'd be wrong. They, as, they may be wrong. As that story I they just told you proves. Yes. <laughs> you know, it's fascinating, right? Like, I saw the uh, this King Todd exhibit that, that traveled around. I was in Toronto when it was at the ROM, the Royal uh, Ontario Museum, I guess. And um, it's just amazing the stuff that they say. Like, And you couldn't question it. I couldn't question it. They'll have, like, uh, oh, look, he had an abscessed tooth. And, well, I guess we know he had some problems with the teeth. Or, like, he broke his leg, apparently. 
he's got like a fractured bone and they can say, oh, he did that playing polo. Like they will, they will figure out how these things occurred apparently through some sort of, uh, uh, historical record and then present them as fact in the museum. And you can't possibly dispute it because this is like 3,000 years old and there seems to be a consensus. Yeah. Well, you know, and someone texted to say that, that he vis- visited uh, Egypt in 1980 and it was amazing, but would never go now. Right. Yeah, and, and exactly. You think about how you know, the thought of going to visit Egypt right now, with everything going on, that just seems crazy to people. So uh, I don't know. Even if this amazing discovery is confirmed and even if it's beyond anyone's wildest expectations, people are still going to be afraid to go to Egypt. And maybe we should be afraid that, uh, you know, one day ISIS might might march on this. Right. Who knows yeah, what the Valley they would of do Kings to and, and destroy it all. Indeed. Uh, we've got to take one more commercial break here. We will be right back. You're listening to Kincaid and Breckenridge on News Talk 770.